All right, I got a question for you. I want to take a little survey. How many of you have had the experience of spending a night in a tent? Raise your hand if you've spent a night in a tent. Okay, good. Seems like most of us know. I think this is interesting. How many of you can honestly say, I've never once done that? I've never spent a night in a tent. Okay, interesting. See, what you got is the adventurous and the smart people. Okay, the, <laughs> the adventurous and the smart. Okay, there's nothing comfortable about spending a night in a tent, but it can be very helpful and functional when you need it. This is my tent. I love this tent. I spent many nights in it. When I'm backpacking the Appalachian Trail, this thing folds up and fits in a backpack and it's nice and light, but it provides good shelter at night. Um, I like my tent. I got a sentimental attachment to it. And last, it's been a little while since I used it. Last time I slept in this tent was the summer of 2021. And in the summer of 2021, I went with a friend. I went up into the Boundary Waters. And uh, the first night we were there, I set up this tent and all over the inside was this white flaky stuff. It looked like little snowflakes or dandruff or something like that. It was everywhere. And I couldn't figure out where it came from or what it was. So once I had my tent set up, I had to like shake it all out and sweep it all out. Okay, here's what I didn't know at the time. What I was looking at was that all the glue that holds the seams together and makes it waterproof, over time had disintegrated to where it fell apart and fell to the bottom of the tent. And that's what it was. I didn't know that at the time. I knew it three nights later when it rained overnight. <laughs> okay, because I got soaked. I had water dripping on my head all night. My sleeping bag got soaked. It was a miserable night. But apart from my tent betraying me then, I like my tent, okay? <laughs> And I have it up here as an object lesson because what we're going to see in today's passage of Scripture is that uh, we learn that Jesus once pitched a tent. I pitched this tent last night. I came here about 5 o'clock last night. It took me about 10 minutes to set this up. But maybe you've pitched a tent before. But Jesus pitched a tent. And if you've never heard that or seen that, we're going to learn about that in just a few moments, okay? We're in the Gospel of John. We started this study. We kicked it off last week. We're going to take 47 weeks to plow our way through the Gospel of John, the first-hand eyewitness account of the life of Christ, and it's going to be awesome. I want to encourage you, if you were not here last week, or if you're watching online and you missed last week, Take the time to listen to the podcast or to watch the service of last Sunday, okay? Because it helps lay the groundwork for all that we're going to be doing in this next year. But the first 18 verses of the book are the prologue to the book. And so it's like the introduction to the book that sets the groundwork, that gives you a frame of reference to understand all the rest of what you're going to read. And last week, we did the very first part of the prologue, verses 1 through 5, and today we finish it up the prologue, verses 6 through 18. So as we dig into God's word, why don't we take a moment to pray together, okay? Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would quiet our hearts, that you would push out any distractions, any anxieties, any worries, anything occupying our brain, and God, that we could just focus 
that we could have hearts that are open and receptive, that we could have ears that hear, that your word might have its way in our life, that, Father, we might um, have greater clarity on who Jesus is and why he came. Uh, Lord, we, we just want to commit this time to you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as we take a look at this passage of Scripture in the first chapter of John, um, verses 6 through 9, I've titled, The Witness to the Light. You're going to see that, that the emphasis here, the thing that's being communicated is that there was a witness to the light, and the light was Christ. Back in the 70s, when Walter Payton played for the Chicago Bears, how many of you remember Walter Payton? You remember watching him play? Sweetness was unbelievable. The mo one of the most gifted athletes I've ever seen. I loved watching him play. But here's the deal. Even the GOAT needed a lead blocker. And for three years in the 70s, there was a fullback on the team by the name of Robin Earl. And Robin Earl wasn't built like a running back. He was built like a linesman. He was 6'5", 250 pounds. He was a mountain of a man. And for three years, he functioned as the lead blocker for sweetness. And so when the ball was snapped, the quarterback would go back. He would fake it to Robin because everyone knew Robin wasn't going to get the ball, right? And, and hand it to Walter behind him. But here's the deal. As they busted through the line, Robin was right in front of Walter and he would bend over and snap in two anybody who tried getting in the way at that point at the line. And he was an incredible lead blocker for uh, sweetness. It was, it was fun to watch. Now, Robin Earl didn't make the Hall of Fame, wasn't a star. Many of you probably never heard his name before, right? But he did his job and he did it well because even the goat needs a lead blocker. Almost my entire life, I've always thought that that's what John the Baptist was for Jesus. That John the Baptist was his lead blocker. That as awesome as Jesus is, as much as he is truly the goat, right? The greatest of all time. Even the greatest of all time needs a lead blocker. And so what we know from the New Testament is that just prior to Jesus coming to earth, he sent John the Baptist to be a forerunner or a lead blocker to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And so we read a little bit here, and next week we're going to get into it big time, what John the Baptist was all about. But we catch a glimpse of it here. Check it out, verses 6 through 9. It says, God sent a man. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so I want you to see that, that John and John the Baptist are two different people, right? The author of this book, John, is a different John, John the Baptist, that John's role, the ministry God had given him, was to be a witness, now, we don't know John's stature, if he was a big dude like Robin Earl, right? But he didn't need to be. But what we do know about John the Baptist is this. He was a roughneck. 
He was a tough guy. He was bold. He was brash. He didn't mince any words. And he was cut out of the cloth of the classic Old Testament prophet, man. I mean, he rained it down on people. I mean, he brought the thunder. And he lived a rugged physical life out in the desert. And I mean, when you're eating locusts, as a snack, you know you're a tough guy, right? The wings get caught in between your teeth and it's gross and it's hard to get out, right? But that's the kind of guy that John the Baptist was. He was the lead blocker for Christ and his role was to be a witness. Now you see, when John came on the scene, it was significant because prior to that, within the nation of Israel, there was 400 years of silence. The last prophet, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And from Malachi to when John the Baptist came on the scene was 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist. And in that 400 years, God was silent. There was no prophetic messages. There was no miracles. It was silence. And folks, that would be disconcerting. For a nation that was used to God regularly speaking to them, that had to be very, very disturbing. And so 400 years of silence, and then boom, John busts onto the scene, and he got everybody's attention. It was clear to everybody that this wasn't an ordinary guy. And so he was drawing huge crowds that came out into the desert. He wasn't even making his way into the big city. He was like, hey, if you care about God, you're coming to me. And crowds were going out to the desert. And so many people were impressed by him and understood that he was something different. That they were like, hey, this is Elijah raised from the dead or something like that. Or, and many people were saying, well, this is the Messiah. The Messiah has finally come. And John had to constantly deflect that and say, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. The Messiah is coming soon. I prepare the way. I'm the lead blocker for the Messiah. But John's role was to point, to simply be a witness. Now here's his goal, and it's right there in verse six. The goal of John's ministry was that everyone might believe. He wanted people to have hearts that were turned towards God so that when the Messiah came, when they met him in person, they would be receptive and that they would believe in him. And folks, this salvation was for everyone. It wasn't just for the nation of Israel. It was for the Gentiles. Everyone needed to embrace Christ and salvation was for everyone. 1 Timothy 2 verse 3 and 4 reminds us of this truth, the heart that God has for the human race. 1 Timothy says, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So that was John's goal, that everyone might believe. Now in verses 10 through 13, I want you to see, we're going to be looking at the inevitable choices, the inevitable, unavoidable choices that every human being must eventually make. I have a conviction. I believe this with all my heart. You may not, and that's okay, I do. I have a conviction based upon the teaching of God's word, and it's this, that one day we will all stand before God and give an account for our life. I believe that day's coming. I really do. We're all going to be answerable, and we'll be standing by ourselves. And you think about like, what, what is God going to ask us? I mean, how is God going to call us to account at that point? And, and if you talk to people, I think you get a lot of different answers of what their expectation is at that moment. And some people say, well, 
maybe God's going to say, hey, did you obey the Ten Commandments? Or were you a kind person? Or were you a generous person? Or did you go to the church? Which church? Or did you read your Bible? How often? Or maybe it's even something like, okay, how do you vote? Republican or Democrat? What were you? A Packers fan or a Bears fan? A Cubs fan or a Sox fan, right? But friends, let me tell you, those aren't going to be the questions that you're going to be held accountable for. I think what it's all going to boil down to in the one question that, that each person's going to have to deal with is this. I think what God's going to say to us on Judgment Day is, what have you done with my son? That's it. Cut through everything else that's peripheral. And what it comes down to is, what have you done with my son? And folks, there's no middle ground. The choice is unavoidable and inevitable. There's one of two options. Either you've accepted him, you've embraced him, or you've rejected him. There's no way to straddle the fence. There's no way to find a middle ground. And I think that's what we're going to be held accountable to, is what did you do with Jesus Christ? So, Look at the two possible answers here. Look, look at how Jesus split the world. Jesus split the world in two different camps. John 1, verse 10 through 13. It says, He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. Not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So there we are. The two inevitable choices, the options that we have. Choice number one is to reject. To not, and by the way, to not make a decision is to reject. To not make a decision is to reject. And you can have a plethora of reasons why you reject Christ being in your life, but that's an option, to reject. Or choice number two is to accept, to embrace. Let me give you a definition for believe. And folks, this word is repeated over 100 times in the Gospel of John. It's the theme of the book. It's why it's the title of this teaching series, to understand what it means to believe according to the New Testament. Let me give you one definition, okay? To believe means a personal trust. To have confidence in it's the idea of being fully persuaded. And so it goes beyond just an acknowledgement of facts, of like giving mental assent to something. But it's like you embrace it, you believe it, you lean into it, okay? That's the idea of biblical faith. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, um, I had a medical procedure that, that required anesthesia. And so... Uh, showing up for this, my life was entrusted into the hands of an anesthesiologist that I had never met before. Hadn't screened him, didn't know the name, didn't know what medical school he went to, didn't know what rank he was in his class. I didn't know anything about his history, but my life was entrusted to this guy who was going to put me to sleep and hopefully bring me back awake, right? You know how I really 
You know how you can tell I truly trusted and believed in the anesthesiologist? It wouldn't have been just with words, right? But the way you could tell I trusted that guy was when he went to poke an IV in the top of my hand, I let him. And I hate IVs in my hand. I much prefer them in the arm and that turkey put it in the back of my hand, okay? And I didn't resist. And as I was getting wheeled off for the procedure, I wasn't clawing and kicking and screaming and trying to grab on the things. I submitted. I was totally relaxed. Now, it might have had something to do with what he was putting in my body too, right? <laughs> but I was, I was like, okay, let's go, right? And everything was fine. But, but the way you could tell that I trusted is that I showed up, I let him have his way with me, right? And so it wasn't just saying, I believe, but with my life, I turned it over to him. Said, I'm trusting you, buddy. And I laid there. And I I think that's a little bit of a picture of what it means to trust Christ. You lean into him. You trust him with your life, believing that he cares about you and will take care of you. Um, Other thing I want to point out before we move on is this, that what we see from this passage of Scripture is that we become children of God by faith and not by birth. Again, he says, but all who believe in him and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. And so, it's not a matter of your ethnicity. It's not a matter of what family you were born into. But becoming a child of God is a matter of you exercising your faith and trusting in Christ. That's what makes a person a child of God. You know what I think is a common, like, urban myth in our society? A real commonly held urban myth in our society is the belief that, and you hear people say it all the time, hey, we're all children of God, right? Have you heard people say that before? They say, hey, we're all children of God, so let's get along. Hey, we're all children of God, so let's take care of each other. And folks, I believe in being kind. I believe in taking care of each other. But what I have issue with is the blanket statement, we're all children of God, because it's not true. It's just not true. Now, we're all loved by God, We're all creatures of God, but scripture makes clear that you become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And until you choose to trust in Christ, you're not a child of God. You're not a part of God's family. And it's that exercise of faith that brings you into the family. And so it's important to know because maybe you've been duped into that mindset, hey, we're all good. We're all children of God. We're not, according to what we just read here in verse 12. But all who believe him and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. Okay, last section here. What I want you to see, verses 14 through 18, is that we see the ultimate expression of God. That when God wanted to communicate as crystal clear as he possibly could, he did something radical. And it was the ultimate expression of God. I don't know um, if you've ever had the opportunity to pray with my wife, Karen, but Karen uses a phrase all the time when she prays. She uses it all the time when she prays, and it's this. Like, she'll be praying for somebody, like, let's say she's praying for Travis, and she'll say, Lord, please be with Travis and, and, and send somebody into his life who can be God with skin on. 
send somebody into his life that they can be God with skin on. And what she means is bring a Christian into his life who can be a tangible Jesus for him, right? That, that, that somebody who can be the hands and feet of Jesus and it can be God with skin on for somebody else, that they can truly experience the love and care of the Father. Um, I found a great poem this week. Um, written by St. Teresa of Avila. And St. Teresa of Avila penned this many, many centuries ago, but it's a classic poem. You're probably familiar with it. I love it. I want to share it with you because it's perfect at what we're thinking about now. This is what Teresa wrote. She said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are his feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. That's great stuff, isn't it? And folks, that's biblical stuff. The New Testament says that you and I who are believers, we are the body of Christ. That we are his hands and feet and we're in this world to be his representative. We are to be God with skin on for our coworkers and for our neighbors and for our family to be used by him so they can experience God in a tangible way. And so you and I are expressions of God in our world. We are Now, we're imperfect expressions, right? There's sometimes we're lazy, sometimes we're apathetic, sometimes we have an attitude, right? We all have our foibles, we all have our issues. So even those of us who are believers, we seek to be expressions of God, but it's very imperfect. But Jesus coming to earth, becoming a human being, was the perfect, never-erring, complete expression of God. And so... Check out these verses, 14 through 18. These are some of the most theologically rich, deepest verses of Scripture in the entire New Testament. So follow along as I read, starting at verse 14. It says, So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. They were eyewitnesses. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, This is the one I was talking about when I said, Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am. I'm just Robin Earl. The dude coming right behind me is going to blow you away, right? The one coming after me is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. I want to take you to the first sentence and a phrase in that first sentence, it says this. 
So the word became human. That's the incarnation of Christ. We celebrate that at Christmas, right? When he was born in Bethlehem. So the word became human. And then here's the phrase, and made his home among us. He made his home among us. You know what the literal translation of this in the original language in which the gospel of John was written That phrase that we've translated into English, made his home among us, in the original language, the literal translation is, he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent. Now, is that a beautiful word picture? That when Jesus came, he pitched his tent among us. I love that. I I love that word picture. Can you imagine if you woke up this morning, we got a coating of snow, you look in your backyard and there's a tent that wasn't there the night before. And you're like, what is that? What's going on, right? And then you find out it's not anybody's tent. That's Jesus's tent. And Jesus is in there. He hasn't quite woke up yet, but Jesus is in that tent. How would you feel if Jesus pitched a tent in your backyard? I imagine at first you'd be pretty pumped, right? That would be pretty exciting. But then after you've thought about it, you'd be like, wait a minute, Jesus is in my backyard. Why is Jesus in my backyard? I think if I found that, I'd be turning to my wife and say, Karen, what do you do? We got Jesus here. What is going on, right? You know? And that's, that's the whole idea of Jesus coming. It was a glorious, amazing thing. But when God shows up, you got to ask the question, wait, what are you doing here? Right? And ultimately, that, that was a glimpse of the bad news. The bad news is he's here because we're broken. He's here because we're separated from God. And he came and tented in our backyard because he was on a mission. And he needed to reveal God to us. The other phrase, and and I'll tell you what this is reminiscent of. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament tabernacle. Are you familiar with the story when, when, when the nation of Israel was wandering in the desert? God gave them instructions to build a huge tent. And they carried it with them. And every time they stopped and camped, they would set up this tent. It was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was where God lived. It was the very presence of God. And this phrase, pitched a tent, could also be translated tabernacled, that God tabernacled among us, that his very presence was right there with us. So why did Jesus come in the flesh? I want to take you to Philippians chapter 2. This is one of the most clearest passages of scripture other than here in John 1, explaining the incarnation of Christ. So check out Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And so I want you to see three things. First of all, why the incarnation? One, he needed to be a man to die. He needed to be a man to die. God is spirit. Therefore, God is incapable of suffering, of bleeding, of experiencing pain, of bleeding, of dying. And so he needed to be a man in order to die, to fulfill this rescue mission. Second thing I want you to see is he needed to be God 
to be an effective sacrifice. You see, we needed a perfect, eternal being to pay for the sins of the world. He didn't die for his own sins. He died in our place. He died for our sins. And so he needed to be God for a sacrifice of that magnitude. And then lastly, the incarnation, he revealed God to us. Other than that, it's easy to think of God as a very abstract concept, a very nebulous idea that's hard to wrap your brain around. And so it's so wonderful that when Jesus came and lived among us and the records of his life are left for us, what we see is what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, me and the Father, we're one. And so he revealed God to us in a way that nothing else ever had. So look at the descriptions here of what God is like, because it's what Jesus was like. Verse 14, it says he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Verse 14, it says that he was glorious. In verse 16, it says he's the giver of one gracious blessing after another. And then in verse 17, it repeats and says he's full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Anytime scripture repeats itself, it's worth noting. And so twice within a couple of verses here, it says that Jesus was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Do you know what that means? That means that you can trust him. It means that he has your best interests in mind. It means that he cares about you, that he loves you, and he's come to make you whole. That what you've been looking for that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning, that sense of inner tranquility, of peace. The things you've been looking for are found in Christ and you can trust him because he's full of unfailing love and faithfulness. So friends, here's where we're at. Where do you currently stand? If you were to stand before God today and you were all by yourself and he were to say to you, what have you done with my son? How would you answer that? You only have two choices. And either it would be affirm, affirming, full of conviction. Father, I embraced him. I loved him. I believed him. I trusted in him. Anything else is I rejected him. Even if you say, like, I never gave him much thought, or I was never really sure, or whatever. A lack of a decision is a decision. And so, friends, when you stand before God, when you think of who Jesus is and what the Gospel of John witnessed to us about Jesus, I want to ask you where you're at in your faith journey. And if you've gotten to the place that you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the deal. It's it's easy, I think, to put stuff like this off. But I think for some of you, God is speaking to you right now. And I think for some of you right now, your pulse is going a little bit faster than normal. And maybe you're feeling a little bit warmer than normal. And maybe you sense that light is turning on in your heart, in your mind. And you understand that need. And I want to invite you right here, where you sit before you leave this room to embrace Christ, to simply believe he came full of love and faithfulness, to believe he died on the cross for your sins, 
to provide forgiveness and that he rose again from the dead to give you new life. Folks, it's really, when it all boils down, it's pretty simple stuff. It's stuff a child could understand. And I want to challenge you with this. If there's something keeping you, blocking you from coming to Christ, if you have a reason why you can't embrace him, could you share that with me? I'd love for you to approach me after the service and tell me what's keeping you from embracing Christ. If you're not that bold, you can email me, you can leave me a voicemail, but I would love to hear what's keeping you from Christ. Because folks, I'll tell you this, I've never heard of a reason good enough to keep you from believing in Jesus. Yeah, you can have hangups, you can have objections, there can be things that, that cause you to stumble a little bit, but when it's all said and done, What's a strong enough reason to keep you from embracing Christ? And I'm not being completely facetious here. I would love to know, okay? If there's something like that in your life, I'd love to know about that. I'd love to be able to maybe walk you through it. But I want to invite you now as we pray. Now, perhaps this is a decision you'd make. And perhaps you'd be praying for those around you that God would speak to them and allow them to make this decision. So let's pray, okay? Father God, we thank you that you work in our lives and that you desire for each one of us to be saved. And Father, we pray today that you'd give clarity to each one of us that in where we stand with Christ. I pray, Father, that you would strip us of our objections, of our hang-ups, of our excuses, and that, Lord, we'd realize that we are loved by you and that you came to bring us eternal life. Father, do your work in our lives this morning through your word. I pray in Christ's name, amen.